You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 507 of this podcast. Today is Monday, November 28th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the impeccability of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And is it necessary that we hold to this idea of an impeccable Christ? What does that mean, first off? Before we get into what do we think of it, what does it mean, and even before we get into what does it mean to say that Christ would be impeccable versus peccable, I want to get to a few other things related to perfection and self-improvement and growth. And actually, there's two videos, two videos that come to me by way of my almost 13-year-old son. Solomon Emmanuel Mullet. So we will play those for you and react to them. A couple of shorts from YouTube that he sent my way over Discord. And then also as well, there's a few items in the news, some current events pieces that I want to touch on briefly. I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about, but I do want to comment regarding before we get too far down the road and these things develop any further than they already have. But even before we get into that, right, before we get into the macro level, current events and whatnot, I want to talk about having been married to my wife for now 16 years. You know, there was a a comment that was made by uh, my friend and pastor, Paul Pavlik, here a few weeks ago. We we were out of church, uh, you know, all of us sick for a couple of weeks, so it's probably... It's it's probably been three weeks ago at this point, but he was talking about marriage and more to the point, he was talking about where in the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew chapter five, Jesus talks about divorce. You have heard that it was said, if you're going to divorce a woman, give her a certificate and send her on her way, even if she only burnt your cooking, uh, depending on which rabbinical tradition you follow. Uh, pretty heavy stuff, right? Pretty heavy stuff. You could say that's really strict. Actually, that's really permissive. And that was a big point he was making was that there being rules and structure around divorce in the Old Testament was to put some boundaries in place, actually to be more protective of women, lest they be you know thrown out, dismissed for trivial reasons, ridiculous reasons in an abusive fashion. And you just have men getting divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried and divorced and remarried because who would do that? Oh, wait a second. Uh, This is America in the year 2022. But anyway, anyway, we obviously need to hear what God's word has to say, hear what Christ has to say about the subject of divorce, if you can't tell. But 
he was talking about, you know, the seven-year itch and how many couples these days on average last so long, seven or eight years, I think is what he said the average was for marriages in the U.S. As I've talked about, we have fewer and fewer young people getting married to begin with, I think in large part because of having seen so many failed marriages and not really having seen successful marriages and not really believing that it's possible or that it's worth the risk. And yet, you know, an interesting tidbit about this whole seven-year itch business, they say that over the course of seven years, every cell in your body will have been replaced. It will have broken down and your body will have replenished and rebuilt it. And so in some sense, every seven years, you are an entirely new person. It didn't happen all at once, but this is this is true from a physical standpoint. It also can be very much true from an emotional standpoint, from a spiritual and a mental standpoint, for better or worse, you might be a totally new person in seven years. And so what happens very often, I think, when marriages fall apart or fail, it's because there was a drifting apart as both the husband and the wife became different people and they stopped paying attention and they stopped getting to know one another and they stopped learning to love the new person that their husband or their wife was. They stopped learning how to lead well and serve well and protect well and provide for well their significant other. And then at a certain point, they realize not only are you a totally different person than when we got married, I'm a totally different person than when we got married. And that's very jarring, right? That's very jarring and that's upsetting and it's disillusioning. And if they don't have any commitment before the Lord God Almighty, if they don't regard themselves as one flesh, how do they work through that? How do they navigate that? Well, for the Christian, that is the critical difference is we're looking at God's word by God's grace and we are seeing a reminder that, wait, 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 no, no, what God has joined together, as in we've taken an oath before God Almighty that we are one flesh, what God has joined together and put a portion of the spirit between, let no man tear asunder. God hates divorce. That doesn't mean he hates divorced people, but he hates divorce. It's a terrible, awful thing. It is the destruction of a one flesh. And uh, it's it's very painful. It's very painful for everybody involved. But a good marriage is life-giving, right? And that's something we need to pay more attention to. And that actually can help us to get through difficult and disorienting seasons of life where one or the other of us is trying to figure out who am I? Who are you? What happened? How did we get here? We've been so busy. We've kind of not been paying attention like we should have. We've kind of not been conversing and comparing notes and getting on the same page like we should have. What do we do now? Remember that a good marriage by God's grace is life-giving. It's literally life-giving in the sense that people come to be from it. Uh, it, you know, not in all marriages, because some things are called marriage that are not marriage, regardless uh, what legislation is currently waiting in the wings in the United States Senate. Also, some marriages are totally legitimate marriages, but they just don't produce children. And, and we don't know why, but God does, and that's okay. But in the in the mainstay, the standard is, the design is that marriage is literally life-giving. People come from good marriages who didn't exist prior to this man and this woman 
saying I do. And besides that, good marriages are life-sustaining. They are encouraging. They are heartwarming. They are uplifting. They are a good example. They are nurturing, right? They're instructive. They're pedagogical in a sense, right? So, so think of it this way too. If I conducted a poll and I asked three people a question and I get two primary answers, let's say it's a binary question, and then I tell you, well, 66% of people respond this way to a survey. Well, yeah, but how big was your survey size, right? And, and when did you ask over what length of time? You know, depending on what my answer is, if I say three people, you're going to say, oh, well, you know what? I think you didn't ask enough people, right? Probably. Uh, unless it's uh, where do we want to go for dinner tonight? And I'm conducting a poll of my kids, right? I'm not going to ask the whole town, where do we want to go to dinner tonight? But if it's my kids, my household, that might be totally legit. But if it's something bigger, if it's something more profound, if it's something more far-reaching, increasing the sample size by either asking more often over time or asking more people will give you higher resolution. It'll give you a better, uh, you know, more reliable result. Well, it's like that with marriage, where when a couple has been married for decades, 30, 40, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, and they start telling you what they learned, you do well to listen in a way that you don't necessarily uh, need to quite as much if they've been married for, I don't know, let's say two, three, four, five, six, seven months, right? Yes, you still are curious. And I remember Lauren and I being asked when we were very early in our marriage, hey, what have you learned so far? I think it was it within the first month, uh, then again, also in the first year, hey, what have you learned about marriage so far? But now we're at 16 years, 16 years of marriage. And not only is that sobering, I think for both of us, for both Lauren and I, I think it's also the case that others on the outside looking in trust that they have a higher resolution picture of what works and what doesn't work in life, that they can actually transpose in meaningful ways into situations that they are trying to make plans about or develop a, an approach to or have good habits in relation to. So all of this brings me to this past weekend. And Friday, I think I mentioned, was our 16th anniversary, the day after Thanksgiving, not for no reason, not accidentally. But we want to be thankful for our marriage. We want to remind ourselves every year to be thankful for marriage. When we first got married, we didn't need that reminder necessarily. We were plenty excited, but we wanted to be intentional on the front end so that we would every year, even if times are tough, even if we're going through, you know, relationship friction and strife and distance and all that, you know, whatever, all the stuff that happens that we knew married couples go through before we said, I do. We wanted to make sure we are reminded every year on our anniversary to be thankful to the Lord God for the blessing of our marriage. So we didn't go anywhere. We didn't do anything necessarily special on Friday, except wish each other, you know, happy anniversary. And we kissed and smiled and looked at an old 
photo album from the day we got married. But Saturday, Saturday, we lined up the very sweet, uh, very admirable Joelle Pringle to come and hang out with our kids in the evening. And then Lauren and I and Andrew went to get some Nordy's barbecue in Loveland, which is delicious, by the way. And it's, we always go there, it seems. And we always get the same thing, it seems, when we go. Always delicious. That's why we keep, that's why we keep going back, because it keeps not disappointing. But we go, and we get to Nordy's. And it was very busy. You know, it's the week of Thanksgiving. So you probably still have a lot of people visiting relatives. They're in the area. Nobody wants to cook anymore. They did all the cooking they have any notion to do for the week already on Thanksgiving Day. And now they just want to eat. Let's just sit down and eat and somebody else can cook for us. So they go to Nordy's. It was about a 30-minute wait. And Lauren and I, we just wait in the truck in the parking lot until they text and call and say, your table's ready. So we're out there sitting in the truck. And my wife says, well, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to do this or give this to you, but um, I've been putting away spare change and, you know, cash that the kids give me in exchange for me ordering things uh, on Amazon for them for the past year. And this is what I saved up. And I really want you to get a new wedding band. Uh, and, and for those of you who don't know, I mean, the, <laughs> when we got married, we were very poor and we're still poor in some sense, but we make a lot more money than, than we did <laughs> adjusted for inflation. <laughs> uh, we, we would have been <laughs> very, uh, well off, very, very comfortable 16 years ago if we were making then what, uh, I make now, but then, you know, we, we have eight kids. So there's that. So we're, we're very, we're very rich. We're very wealthy with regards to children. That's our investment. That, that's our retirement plan and our 401ks. We're, we have these children and we're trying to give them a good education and good upbringing and all that. But when we first got married, we were even without children, uh, two poor college students. And we picked out Walmart wedding bands. And I think between the two, we spent a hundred bucks for the two. They're just simple, simple gold bands. I'm still wearing mine 16 years later and it doesn't embarrass me. It doesn't bother me. I don't complain. Um, I'm still wearing mine and it's fine. Right. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't need anything fancy to remind me and to symbolize my marriage and my love for my wife. But 11 years ago, roughly, you know, and some change, I, before getting on an airplane and flying out to bring my wife and kids to our new home in eastern Montana, I stopped at the jewelry store in Fargo, North Dakota, and I, I bought my wife a nicer wedding band. It had been three months since I went out west, went back home to Montana to look for a job in the oil and gas industry. And the paychecks were so, so much bigger. And so I 
I I did. I I bought her a much nicer ring with some gemstones and everything. And uh, it was, well, I, I won't say how much it cost, but it was about 20 times. <laughs> it's it about 20 times what her original wedding band had cost. And that was my surprise for her uh, when I got off the plane and and uh, was reunited with my wife after three months to take her home to Montana. Is Here, I, I got this for you. And so she's had it ever since. She's she's still got that as her wedding ring. And I've still been wearing this gold band. And it's okay, right? It's it's okay, but then again, it's not. And it and it hasn't been okay for her. It's bothered her and she's felt bad that here she's got this nice ring and I'm still wearing the Walmart band. And so she saved up all this money and it was yeah, it was nearly five hundred dollars that and 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 we can credit the kids actually to a large extent. <laughs> uh, they made it possible for her to you know secret this money a little bit at a time. But I just here a little bit ago ordered a uh, upgraded, I guess you could say, uh, wedding ring for myself, and uh, it's it's pretty great. It's pretty great. I you know it's. It really isn't first and foremost the ring that is special. It's what the ring symbolizes. But even just there, what the ring symbolizes in this case is that my wife, over the course of a year, was really intent on my having a nice ring too, which is very sweet. And I, I'll tell you just a little bit about it, and then and then we will move on. I I don't want to talk the entire episode about my new wedding ring, but it's a titanium band with buckeye wood and little flecks of gold. Supposedly, supposedly, I don't know. How, how would I verify? Supposedly panned in Alaska. Just little flakes of gold here and there. And uh, it, it looks rather handsome. Uh, buckeye wood and I think symbolic of Ohio, where we got married, where we got our start. Not a strong wood, uh, not even necessarily in and of itself a, a beautiful wood, I wouldn't say. But then you can make it stronger. If you, you put some titanium in there, have that be the structure, and then get this thing to where it's smooth. You know, sand it and put a veneer or clear coat on it, you know, put some gold flecks in there too. Also symbolic of the prospecting and the hope, right? The, the trying of marriage and put those things together. I, I think, I think it's a very handsome ring. I really do. I'm excited to see it come. I had to print off some ring sizing stuff to uh, figure out how big my finger is really. And we did that last night, got that figured out. But I went ahead and I ordered it. There's a place in Utah that I found the store for online, Staghead Designs. And they've got really good reviews. And this ring in particular really caught my eye. So a big thank you to my wife, uh, not just for the gesture and saving up over the past year, giving that to me in a very meaningful 
way on our 16th anniversary, but just for everything, for being my wife, it's been a huge, huge blessing to be married to her for 16 years and however many years the Lord gives us in the way of life, I look forward to seeing what he does with us down the road because I, I know, I know, uh, it'll be surprising. I know that it will be unexpected and I know that it'll be good. So enough about that. Moving on. Some things that are in the news today, some current events items. One, Americans now need a six-figure salary to afford a median-priced home, according to some reporting by Ben Zeisloft over at The Daily Wire. So um, go figure, right? (laughs) Go figure. I guess that's not news to me. Uh, I do have a six-figure salary. I do make that much. But uh, it's definitely... It's definitely gotten expensive, a lot more expensive. And I I don't think just because we've moved. I think also it just it's inflation. It's the economy, stupid, as Reagan said when he was running against Jimmy Carter. Uh, I think we need to bring that back. It is the economy, stupid. That's what's going on. In other news, the UN wants us to know that words are weapons now, and they lead to cruelty and violence Thanks, United Nations. Uh, according to Cardinal Pritchard over at Not to Be, it's pretty easy to see where the UN is headed with this new little campaign of theirs. There's a tweet from the UN. Words can be weapons. Hate speech online can lead to cruelty and violence in real life. Get tips for how you can say no to hate. Speaking of saying no to hate, like this hand grenade with keyboard keys on it, Elon Musk, also a report at Not The Bee from Joel Abbott. Elon Musk is going to war with Apple over threats to remove Twitter from the App Store. He has been threatened, supposedly, over his plan to grant blanket amnesty to people who were banned from the platform on frivolous grounds. And Apple, for their part, they want him to not do that. Uh... They've already pulled their advertising, but supposedly, apparently, they are also perhaps going to pull a parlor here where they just say, well, if you've got an iPhone, you can't use Twitter, not on your iPhone. You know, how long before Google does the same thing, tries to do the same thing? Hard telling, really hard telling. Um, You know, I, I think Musk's idea of starting his own smartphone company, making his own smartphone, making a Twitter phone. I think it's a great idea. And I think he could pair it very easily with Starlink and have his own ISP slash uh, cell phone providing. And it might just sell really, really well. And you could connect buying one of his phones and being on Starlink with getting the blue check, being verified. Right, that's an easy way to just package all these things together, bundle them all together. I think it's a great idea, and I think there's a lot of people that would jump at the chance, especially if if it's genuine, right? If it's genuine on his part that he really is for giving common people within 
the bounds of a rather libertarian approach to free speech, giving them the freedom to speak, to communicate their ideas, to argue, to debate, to critique, to double check their government or the science, uh, celebrities, you name it. You know, if he's if he's real about that, and that's not just a show, and it's not fake, it's not just a marketing gimmick. I think there's a lot of people who would love to make a switch to a phone that he would put out that would not be chock full of, you know, spyware. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I, I think it's a great idea. Uh, I don't see Google and Apple letting him stay. I think they are probably going to force his hand and they're going to just mess around and find out and just see and just try. And uh, I hope if I'm right in that, that he is ready to make a really great smartphone. And I hope that he's being genuine because he's being downright heroic if he is genuine. So here's hoping we'll see. (laughs) Time will tell. Go to war. By all means, go to war, and uh, I hope you win. But in other news, another current events item. Also, some reporting from Ben Zeisloft over at the Daily Wire. Here's how much home prices could soon plunge. According to a report from the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, between 15 and 20%. Now, that's awful if you recently bought a home and were thinking of selling. That's awful if you've owned a home for some time and you were just thinking about selling and moving. It's not awful if you're in my family's situation where you sold a home before all this craziness and you would really love to be able to afford to buy a home and not be renting right now. If you're in our situation where you look at the surging median home sale price between 2020 and 2022 from $322,600, according to his reporting, to $454,900. If you're looking at that, boy, this is some really good news and very exciting that maybe the prices are going to come down. Here's hoping. Sorry for those who are uh, trying to sell. It's not a good time for you. No two ways about it. But Really good for us, really good for my family, my household, if we can manage to actually take advantage uh, while prices are low. One last item, one last. Number of Americans regularly carrying handguns doubled in just four years, according to reporting by Paul Saka over at theblaze.com. With the rate of violent crime increasing, the number of Americans regularly carrying a loaded handgun has spiked. A study by the American Journal of Public Health published November 16 found that the number of Americans who carry a loaded handgun every day has doubled in just four years. Approximately 6 million Americans packed a gun daily in 2019 versus 3 million who did so in 2015. There were 16 million adults in the U.S. who carried a handgun in the past month compared to 9 million in 2015. That's a huge increase. And actually on that note, speaking of my wife again, for the first time ever, my wife just here recently asked if we could get her a concealed carry weapon. Now we have 
some semi-auto handguns. Uh, don't tell Joe Biden, but we're not giving them up. We do have some semi-auto handguns that I uh, occasionally, not always, not regularly, not every day, but which I uh, concealed carry. Both Lauren and I have our CCWs, but she's usually home. She doesn't typically go out and about, uh, not as much as I do. And so the guns just stay home, right? We have the guns at home and she hasn't really felt much of a need, I don't think, for a CCW. But she recently asked, can we get me a good concealed carry handgun? And of course I said yes. Right, so we're we're shopping right now. We're looking. We just actually even uh, on Saturday, so our our 16th anniversary. She gave me a whole bunch of cash that she had saved up over the past year to get a new ring for me, and we also went handgun shopping. And we didn't buy just yet. We're going to very shortly, but we wanted to do a little bit of research on a couple in particular that we were looking at. Uh, broadly speaking, there's the six hour. P365 that looks really good. It's got great reviews. Also, there's the Kimber Micro 9, which has really great reviews. A little less capacity, but smaller, easier to conceal. So, I don't know. Uh, Great reviews either way, but there's a little bit of a choice coming up. Because the simple fact of the matter is, increasingly, more and more, we're seeing absolutely crazy people doing evil, heinous, awful things. And it is not a bad idea to get your CCW, to get a handgun, learn how to use it, become proficient until you can safely operate that firearm to defend your own life, to defend other people who look up to you and who are around you, your friends, your family, and also to protect uh, the public in general. You see some violent crime in process, some mass shooting that is just about to happen and you have a firearm, well, that's a whole lot better than having to hide underneath a table, run, see how fast you can run. You know, it's, it's so much better, so much better for you to actually have a firearm that you could use to protect yourself and to defend other innocent life. This is not a question of turning the other cheek. Again, as I've said before, and actually as, uh, again, Paul Pavlik brought up, this Sunday uh, in his sermon, as he was preaching about this passage, uh, that passage does not have to do with whether self-defense is ever justified or legitimate or uh, acceptable to God. That's very clear from the scriptures. Self-defense, and more to the point, defense against mortal threats from criminals and evil people, That belongs in a different category than someone just disrespectfully slapping you on the one cheek because they're trying to provoke you. Those are two very different things. And self-defense before God, when it is in protection of innocent life, that is a good and noble thing. But you need to make up your mind before you're in a situation where it's life or death to be prepared and to have the right Uh, hardware to get some good training, to be practiced, to be familiar, and and, and to be competent, right? You need to know what you're about and you need to know uh, how to use a weapon effectively so that you're not going to hurt yourself. You're not going to hurt other innocent people. But 
enough about that. Enough about current events. Enough about handguns and home prices and uh, other such troubling things. I want to play a couple of shorts that were recently sent to me by my son, Solomon. He's going to be turning 13 the end of December. We're going to go on a trip. But in the meantime, he's got (laughs) some uh, rather interesting items for us to discuss. And he asked me to do some reaction to them. I'm going to do some reaction to them and give some input Uh, because these are out there, right? They're out there. Other people are thinking this way and we do well to grapple with what's being said. And is it true? Is it correct? Take these thoughts captive. So first of all, we've got a video that is titled, Women have huge egos. Sneeko reacts. I don't know who Sneeko is, but he's going to react. Uh, take a listen to this. I'll play it all the way through, and then I'll tell you what I think of not just what these ladies have to say, uh, but also what uh, Sneeko, as he's called, thinks uh, on these things, what his summary is. Who is better at self-improvement, men or women? Men, but they're all going to say women. Women. Self-improvement, definitely women. Okay, rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10. I'm a 10, I'm a 10, I'm a 10. Let's see, like, it. they literally are about to be hypocrites in the first sentence. Women are better at self-improvement, but I'm already perfect. And know this because they all think the same thing. Listen. Hands across the board. Oh, period. Okay. And they don't even realize the irony of that statement. They just so proudly look at the f- lack of self-awareness and just all the pride on their faces from Instagram. Saying you're a 10, admitting there's no room for improvement? No, no, no. not at all. Isn't the first step towards improvement admitting you're not perfect? You're we right. Yes. We were perfect. We just said we, we saw were our ten. tens. You s- focus on yourself, Kings. Don't waste your don't waste your attention. Don't waste your energy on them. Okay, so <clears throat> first of all, before I say anything about these young ladies being asked randomly uh, this question. Uh, I I think it's weird to um, call all men kings or to call all women queens. You're not – either way, you're not uh, any more kings and queens. They're really just figureheads and uh, that's not where the real power is. You're you're not kings and queens. You're just men and women or boys and girls, as the case may be. In this case, in this video, it looks like this, these are boys and girls. They are all dressed up in a way that <clears throat> is the fashion these days. But, uh, you know, I, I would just encourage both and look at old photographs and old moving pictures from like when the – camera was very first invented. Uh, Not everybody, right? Not everybody. Lots of people still dressed just however. They didn't necessarily have nice clothes or they didn't all necessarily care. (laughs) But I would say the majority of folks who you would see walking down a city street a hundred years ago, they were dressed much more proper and, and with much more of a respect for the general public and how other people, how other people thought of them. And the way that that 
has changed in our day is that, yes, we care very, very much what other people think of us in our generation. So we want our generation to think a certain way about us, but the other generations, yeah, whatever. Right. And so there's, there's generation gaps. And I think this speaks to a brokenness of society and of families and uh, the way that we conceive of our, our social standing that young people are going to dress like they're going to the club, even when they're not, because they, 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 they think that that's how to gain acceptance in their peer group, I guess. Um, so these, these young ladies, they're dressed like they're either on their way to the club or they're on their way back from the club. Either way, it, they're out on the town. It's the nighttime. They're dressed like uh, women of the night, actually, because increasingly that's just the fashion, right? Not that the fashion is to dress nicely in a dignified way, but the trend is increasingly to dress like you're a gangster or you're uh, a, a lady of the night. And I think that's very unfortunate. I, I, I really do. And I'm not trying to put anybody down, but I am trying to say we are not aiming for success if that's what we aspire to. So that's point number one. Point number two is with regards to these women saying, oh, we're tense. We're all tense. Yeah, you know, but you're not though, right? You're, but you're not. You're not all tense. Not everybody can be tense. That's fine. Also, there's a profound lack of humility in saying, oh yeah, we're all tense, right? There's a, there's a lack of humility there. Also, this is what comes of injecting pure, unadulterated self-esteem into children because that's been the psychology that is popular. Uh, if we build up self-esteem, like per Dr. Spock writing about parenting and uh, child development in the mid uh, 20th century, the most important thing for children to be well-adjusted and successful is for them to think very highly of themselves. And so that's why you shouldn't discipline them. That's why you shouldn't spank them. That's why you shouldn't tell them no. You might damage their ego, damage their self-esteem, damage their confidence. Nothing could be worse than that. Nothing could be worse than telling them no, except actually quite the opposite. Nothing could be worse than only ever telling children yes. Ironically, it's it's just the opposite. If you want to destroy children, only ever tell them yes, and that how they think, feel, believe, what they want to do is quite correct. That That will destroy them. Maybe not all at once, not right away, but it will in the long run. Well, these young ladies, they're all tens. And then the person asking them the question, it was uh, just randomly interviewing them, putting a camera in their face and they, you know, that doesn't bother them because, you know, that, hey, that's the meaning of life, right? Is having a camera in your face and people wanting to broadcast your image and your thoughts, your ideas on the internet. The, the, the guy who's asking them the question says, well, you know, who, who needs to be improved? I mean, essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but who needs self-improvement if you're already tense? You're, you're already perfect. And actually, the initial question was, who is better at self-improvement? 
men or women, guys or girls. And they say, oh, girls, definitely, definitely. Now, to be fair to them, you've you've put them on uh, the, the track for that to some extent just by asking the question that you're asking. Like You've started it off on the foot of the premise that one or the other is better. And if you've already started it on the premise that one or the other is better, then you fault the ladies for saying, well, if it's got to be one or the other, then it's us. Um, you know, there's a little bit of a, a gotcha quality. Let's be honest. But, it, you know, the, the reverse is, right? The reverse is there's a, a kind of hypocrisy to uh, Sneeko or whatever his name is. Sneeko is like, nah, see, like guys, guys are absolutely better about self-improvement because we don't say that we're tens, you know. But but we're, you know, going to call each other kings, I guess, apparently, I, not my friends, not not my generation, but um, listen, I you know I think <clears throat> I, I think men and women both alike can be profoundly self-absorbed, and it can look very different. I think that both men and women can be very vain and foolish, and it can look very different when it's men being that way versus women being that way. To be fair, in our day, there's a lot of very manipulative games that have been played favoring girls, trying to empower girls, supposedly. But it's actually, you know, going back to the Dr. Spock thing, it's the worst thing we could do for our young girls and young women to tell them everything they do is quite correct, very perfect, wonderful, nothing to improve on. You know, whatever principle holds true. For both boys and girls, it, you know, if we if we are building up the self esteem, especially overmuch for girls compared to boys, for one, we're setting up animus between boys and girls. We we are putting them on a collision course, which I have to wonder sometimes whether that wasn't the idea, but we're putting them on a collision course to create and engender, no pun intended, strife between them, right? So actually, if anything, we should feel all the sorrier for either young men or young women, either who think they are great just the way that they are, they're perfect, they're tens, you know, and and yes, it's kind of silly to say you're a 10, you're a 10, you're a 10, but, you know, you could still use some self-improvement, right? Um, also, too, you know, another point here I want to throw in, self-improvement uh, what is that, right? It, it's contingent on, I guess, what we think the problem is with us. If we think that the problem is just that, you know, we don't hit the gym often enough, we don't make enough money, we don't have a nice enough house, we don't have a shiny, new enough, fancy enough car, uh, we don't have enough followers on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube or Twitter or whatever, right? If we think those are the problems... Well, then self-improvement is going to look such and such a way. If we think that the problem we have primarily, though, is our sinful nature, grappling with that, well, the Christian worldview would say it's terminal unless, by God's grace, providentially, you receive some unmerited favor through Christ, through what Christ has already done. And, and, and I have... More to say on that 
point as we get into the impeccability of Christ. I haven't forgotten what our main topic is. Trust me. But one, I don't think we should be describing ourselves as tens. And two, uh, I, I think we might have the wrong idea in our day, by and large, as to what self-improvement can actually fix and address, given that we think in very materialistic ways and, and we're not considering our need for God, our need for a Savior. And we love because he first loved us, for instance. So if you're really feeling loveless and you're feeling like there's a lot of cold-hearted people in broader society who are only for themselves, and you've just given up on love, which is, I think, what I'm getting at um, – what, what I'm what I'm really wanting to respond to here with Sneeko's final comment about you know hey like focus on yourself right don't waste your time on these women right all women are this way and that's another thing right that's a, that's another important thing to key in on here is this conflating here's your sample size it's three girls random girls on the street we don't even know their names three random girls and all women are this way really like that was that's kind of sloppy. Right. Speaking of self-improvement, I think your methodology for coming to conclusions about all women is needing some work. But if we're feeling loveless and like the stakes are too high, the odds of success are too low, if not zero, we really need to consider why love has broken down and how does love need an inspiration we love because God first loved us. That's the Christian conception. That's the Christian position. That's what God's word says. We love because he first loved us. So I would highly recommend young men, young women, meditate on the love of God for you in Christ Jesus and let that inform your capacity, your motivation to love God in return and to love those around you, men or women in an appropriate way. And by God's grace, maybe God has a, a woman for you to marry. And then you love that woman as your wife in imitation of Christ loving the church and laying his life down for the church. But this is uh, you know, the, the same kind of thinking, the same kind of reasoning, same kind of complaining that I always hear when I am watching some MGTOW men going their own way video. It's always the same thing. Women writ large are this way. And and women do it too. They've been doing it in the opposite direction for far too long, but that doesn't make it right to do it right back. It, 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 like it was, it was ignorant when they were doing it. Thanks to feminism. It's also ignorant when men do it right back and say, ah, yes, I'll show you. Right. That's great. That's, that's great. That, that's going to get us exactly nowhere. That's gotten us nowhere so far. You want to be leaders and show how self-improved you are. Go to God and ask for his grace and ask him to give you the capacity to extend grace and to live a virtuous life that serves him, that follows after him, that honors him with what he's entrusted to you. And you know what, men? You do that, and I guarantee some woman out there is going to see that and she's going to say, that's really fantastic. You are special. And maybe the two of you, by God's grace, you get married 
And you don't need all women to be a certain way, all men to be a certain way. No, no. What has God called you to? That's the question you should be asking. And can you help facilitate some young woman asking that same question, what has God called her to? And can you work together to follow after Christ? There's a great idea. I think that's a much more winning proposition. Don't ask the question, who's better? No, no. Ask about what God's purpose is. That's my advice. Moving on. Next clip. Woman, not women. Uh, Shorts, Sarah Don Moore. This one is curious. Uh, Sarah Don Moore, I'm not familiar with her so much. She's got a shirt on here that says men matter. So I'm guessing this is probably kind of a men's rights movement ally female. Uh, There are some of those online. And then uh, there's somebody else who's talking here, another another, uh, young woman. And she's telling a story about when a woman pretended to be a man. Let's take a listen and see what we've got here decided to be a man because she wanted to see how men were treated not sex change an experiment she ended up killing herself after like a year and a half of this because she said she was treated so horribly by women that she couldn't even believe that this is how men lived and i was like no way but i can see it i can see that you guys don't speak up you don't say the things that we need to hear because you're, you want to love us, you want to support us, you want to be there for us, but you guys are supposed to be. You're supposed to be the strong one. Yeah. You're supposed to be these things, and yet we've been fighting to be your equal, fighting to be the alpha, fighting to be, and out of kindness, you guys are stepping back, but it's a losing war for both of us. Yeah. Okay, so, <clears throat> hmm. where to begin? First of all, and actually, this this relates in a surprising way uh, to something else. And you you where else are you going to get this? You're, you're not going to get a conversation. Maybe there's a good reason uh, why nobody else is talking about all these things in the same podcast episode. But if you haven't noticed, uh, look at my logo again. My name is Garrett Ashley Mullen. I want to talk about everything. We need to get away from this idea that you have got to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes in order to come to meaningful conclusions about what they're doing, how it's going, what their life is like, right and wrong, true and false. You don't have your truth and I have my truth and everybody gets their own truth. No, that doesn't work. And stop it. Some woman who's got a little bit more of a masculine uh, face doesn't need to dress up like men, pretend to be a man live that way for a year and just see how she's treated. Um, that that doesn't need to happen. And you don't need to do that to come to some meaningful conclusions. I don't have to dress up as a woman for a year to come to some meaningful conclusions about about what it's like to be a woman, right? I can observe. I can pay attention. I can listen. I don't have to be a woman to be able to make some meaningful conclusions uh, out loud uh, known about what is troubling women in our day. So also on the flip side, women don't need to become men in order to relate. So that's the first thing I would say. And then I would also say too, some woman, some young woman who's going to pretend to be a man for a year and then kill herself, um, 
there's a lot more going on here. There's a lot more going on here that is just tragic and broken. And this is true across the board. And I would refer you back again to Dr. Spock and this whole idea that we need experts to teach us everything. We need science to pave the way to a bright new future. And then when the bright new future doesn't come along like we were expecting, we have no language. We have no conception of moving on, right? It's just, it's the end, right? So the first thing I would say is this woman should not have tried to walk a mile in a man's shoes and and she certainly should not have killed herself. That was wrong and that's tragic and that's awful and I'm very sorry to hear it. Now, the next thing I would say with regards to how men are treated versus how women are treated, you know, I, I think people in general are treating one another in a more and more cold-hearted, awful, ugly way. There's a callousness and a selfish selfishness that marks our day, and it is in proportion to the ascendancy of secularism, of the left, of progressivism, of godlessness. Short, short and simple. Um, we love because God first loved us. Well, what happens when society rejects the love of God, banishes that from public? spews venom on those who would try to remind us of the love of God, the grace of God, who would live that out if it means at any point, at any turn, denying ourselves, not getting what we want, not having what we want, not being called what we want to be called. What happens is is what is happening. More and more meanness, rudeness, uh, unkindness, harshness, strife, loneliness, we desperately need the love of God to teach us how to love, to give us the capacity to love. We desperately need the grace of God to take out our hearts of stone and put in hearts of flesh instead. And God is in the business of doing that. That is not impossible for him. It's not too hard for him. He promises to do that for his people. So that's what's needed here, not dressing up like a dude if you're a chick, so that you can empathize and certainly not ending your life. Life is such a beautiful gift from God that we don't know how long we have it and we may not know all of what will be contained in it, but we definitely ought not to be throwing it away and squandering it. We need to be going to God and asking him what to do with ours. And God promises he will give us wisdom. James Half-brother of Jesus writes about this in his epistle in the New Testament. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. For the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed about. So we need to be going to God and we need to be asking God for wisdom. Desperately, desperately we need wisdom and we need to be taught how to love. The next thing here is with regards to how men are treated. And what the expectations are. You know, I I think it looks different. I think it looks different when women are awful to men in our day, in part because women have been given a extra heavy dose of this self-esteem nonsense, as though that really is the cure for what ails us. The cure is not to feel guilty, ashamed, apologetic when we wrong others, right? 
But if our own guilt and shame brings us to a place of repentance, that is good because the repentance is what is very, very important where we confess our sins and God in Christ is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But the methodology of Dr. Spock, of the power of positive thinking secularists, does an end run around the whole process. Hey, you know what? We can do something with the guilty feelings too. We'll just deny that there is any such thing as wrongdoing. We'll deny that there is a difference between good and evil, right and wrong. But then the natural consequences come in and we get what we get. And and then we, over generations, lose the capacity, apart from going back to God's word, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We lose the language, even the vocabulary, even to describe why we feel so bad and why we're so alone and why we're so sad and why everyone is so mean and unpleasant to each other. So I would say, you know, with regards to gender and relationships and the modern life and the cure for what ails us, men are still expected because this is just, uh, it's, it's how we were made. It's what we were made for by God to lead, to provide for, to protect. We are still expected to be tough, resilient, and yet men decreasingly have the capacity to meet their obligations. And at the same time, apart from hearing the gospel message, they also lack an exit strategy to get out of the hopeless route, to get off the path that leads to destruction, and to be redeemed, and to be restored, and to be made right, and to be given what they need to be successful, truly. Well, so also, women recognize that. I think there's some sense in which they're recognizing a lack in men, and there's some sense in which women, at the exact same time, are not told from little on up in our society to look in the mirror and recognize any lack whatsoever in themselves. That's why in the previous video we were playing, they're saying, oh yeah, we're all tens across the board. Oh no, we're not perfect. We're just tens. Well, wait a second. Do you even know what you're saying? Well, no, you don't because you've just been fed this and and your pawns, right? Your pawns in a larger game of social engineering. Part of how we stop being captives to that larger game of social engineering by the experts, by the godless, is we find refuge in God and his word. And so that's what's needed here. That That's what's needed for both the men and the women in these situations. And I, and I think too, I mean, I, this woman is, is, she's on the something, right? She's, she's keying in on something about the dynamic that is supposed to be there between men and women and what men need from women and what women need from men. And yet without God's word, without God's grace, without God's righteousness, how do we have it? How, how do we get that? Well, the simple answer is we can't. We can't. We, you've got to go back to God to get it. Uh, we must. We must go back to God to get that supply of what we need. And if we do, and here's the good news, if we do, we can have a very beautiful, bright future that is not lonely, that is not cold, that is not mean, that is not ugly, that is not empty, but is full of life, everlasting, eternal, full of life and goodness and grace 
and joy. That's what we want. That's what we should want. But we've got to go to God to get it. Now, speaking of sin and temptation and the grace of God in Christ, we come to a question regarding the character of Christ, which is, I think, important. It doesn't necessarily follow that just because it's an important question, that means, therefore, that we have to know one way or the other, uh, or that we can't know Christ at all if we don't know the answer to this question, but it's an important question. And that is the question of, could Jesus have sinned? So one important passage here is found in Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you have this idea communicated by the author of Hebrews in the New Testament of the Bible that we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. But 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, when it says that he was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin, what does that mean? Some hold that Jesus being tempted is only talking about external temptations presenting themselves to him, but nothing internally whatsoever. Like it didn't move the needle at all. He didn't want that at all in any way, shape, or form, in any respect. He was not internally tempted. He was externally tempted. So for instance, if, uh, let's say, my wife tells one of our kids, she's just baked some Christmas cookies for biblical training group on a Friday night. She says, all right, guys, don't touch these cookies. These are for tonight. Don't touch them. And then let's say one of my youngest sons, John, he grabs one and offers it to Enoch, who's the next one up. Almost seven. Four years old, John. Seven years old, almost. Enoch. Now, John offering the cookie that mom said, don't eat, to Enoch is an external temptation. If Enoch really wants to eat that cookie, man, that looks like a really good cookie. Well, that's internal temptation. So Hebrews 2.18, 4.15, is it talking about Christ being tempted externally? So Satan comes to him in the desert when he's gone out in the desert to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights after having been baptized in the River Jordan by John, his uh, cousin, is Jesus being tempted only externally because Satan is offering him all the kingdoms of this world or fill in the blank? Or is Jesus also tempted internally to where a part of him wants that and yet he says no anyway? Now, James 1.13 gets brought into the mix here, and this is an important passage in favor of the position that Jesus could not have sinned. Yes, he was tempted, but he could not have sinned. He was incapable of it. It was impossible for him to have been tempted internally even. James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, what do we do with that, right? Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the incarnate Son of God, 
is fully God and fully man, not just fully man. And historically, throughout church history, heresies again and again crop up that deny either Christ's full humanity or his full divinity, because it's difficult to conceive of Christ being fully God and fully man all at the same time as the scriptures make very clear that he is, and he must be. No, Christ was not a created being made by God. He's co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, co-equal of the same substance, fully God. And then there's this idea of what's known as the hypostatic union, that it's not that Christ puts aside his humanity to be God. It's not that he puts aside his divinity to be man. He is fully God and fully man in the incarnation. On the one hand, how could God ever do something that is contrary to his own will? That's an important question. On the other hand, when it says we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin, how can that be redefined in any way, shape, or form? How can that be whittled down at all without invalidating this comfort, this assurance? You know, it isn't just for our comfort. It has to be true in order to be comforting. God's not lying to us. He's not stretching the truth just to make us feel good and calm down and there, there, stop crying. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Well, one of the things that is pointed out in a helpful link that was sent to me by my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, with whom I was talking about this, uh, J.P. and I both were discussing this with our friend Travis Polk after church yesterday. J.P. went home, did some research on it. Actually, it just so happens his biblical training group, uh, it's another theology group. They are just about to be getting into uh, the, you know, the, the impeccability of Christ in this unit, this module coming up. And that led J.P. to reformedforum.org and a podcast episode they recorded and published back in July of 2018. As they point out, God doesn't need to personally sin in order to sympathize with us. He doesn't have to become you and I feeling guilty and ashamed and actually being guilty of sin because we do sin in order to sympathize with us. So then, why would he need to be internally tempted? Why is it not enough for him to just be externally tempted? Okay, so I see what you did there. I don't know that I agree, but it's not a bad argument. I just don't know that it's a true argument or that it's the right argument. But then interestingly, one of the things they bring up is they talk about R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson and how these two very well respect, or you know, Sproul has since passed on, but these two both still very highly regarded, very well respected, especially among the Reformed. And they are not sold on impeccability. 
And rather than me trying to summarize, why don't I just play it for you? I'll play this clip of Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul discussing this question. It's a panel discussion that they're having. It's about uh, 10 years old now at this point, 2012. Uh, actually, I suppose it's it's almost uh, 11 years old. January 2012 is when this was recorded. But take a listen. Here's Theology Night with Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul from Ligonier Ministries. And then I want to touch on a few things that they have to say. Maybe no one else is going to dare to ask a question from the floor now. No, but here's, here's, here's the one that's closely related. That's why I wanted to go to the TV. Was Christ and his humanity peckable or impeccable? Namely, was he able to sin or unable to sin? Now, I don't know how he's going to answer that question. I usually can predict how he's going to answer a question because we always answer it the same way. But I have lots of Reformed people that answer this question differently from how I answer this question. So let's find out. Go ahead. Wow. This, this question is, as I understand it, focused on the humanity of Christ. I understand that. And the humanity of Christ we think of in terms of Him being what Paul calls the second man and the last Adam. So, He isn't in His humanity superman, but real man. And I simply deduced from that, that the humanity of the Lord Jesus, as that was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, was sinless as Adam's humanity was sinless, but it was as real humanity as was Adam's. And so, he really had the posse pacare. And so, when he, the was, ability to sin. when he was tempted in his humanity, it would have been to compromise that humanity if he had, as it were, uh, said to God, slide some deity in here. Yes. You know, if, if he had, as it were, punctured a hole between his divine nature and his human nature and said, just give me, give me this super injection plus, uh, that, that actually would be a heresy, and it would also disqualify Jesus from being our Savior. So, I think it's very important that we emphasize that everything Jesus does in His humanity, He does in a true, full, and real humanity. And uh, one of the ways I think we can be helped to understand that is, well, there are several ways, but one of them is by reading Luke one chapters 1 through 4, and especially noting at the end of chapter 2 how Luke says, that Jesus grew in wisdom. In other words, He was wiser when He was 13 than He was when He was 12. So, He had a real humanity. He grew in stature. So, He was taller when He was 13 than He was when He was 12. He grew in favor with man. So, His mom and dad appreciated Him more when He was 13 than they did when He was 12. But wait for it, 
he grew in favor with God. And if he grew in favor with God, that's an expression of his obedience expanding into his potential. And remember how Paul, I've sometimes wondered if when Paul wrote this, Luke said, do you know, I'm going to write something about that in my gospel. Paul says that when the Lord Jesus was incarnate, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, he became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. So, while he is perfectly holy throughout the whole course of his life, there is an expansion of his obedience throughout the whole course of his life. And if that is the reality of his humanity, then I think we are bound to say that that means his humanity actually also had the potential, simply as his humanity, Sinclair, to veer away. would you accept my apology in front of all these people for ever having the slightest possible doubt that you might not agree with me 100% on this question? Because I agree so fully with you, and I, I'm always disturbed when so many of my friends want to say that because of the incarnation and because of the perfect union between the divine nature and the human nature, Jesus was impeccable inherently, even in his human nature. And I think that's a form of docetism, and I always have. Okay, so great answer, I think. I think, personally, that is an answer that I agree with and that I also hold to. I articulated something very similar, not necessarily as well as Sinclair Ferguson did. Uh, I basically said the exact same thing without mentioning docetism specifically. But docetism, for those of you who don't know, it's the doctrine important in Gnosticism that Christ's body was not human, but it was either a phantasm or of real but celestial substance. So therefore, his sufferings were only apparent. He didn't really suffer because, well, he's God, right? So he couldn't have really suffered. How would that go? But it's an important thing. It's an important thing that we not try and relieve ourselves of the tension between Christ's full humanity and his full divinity. And honestly, you know, I said this yesterday when JP and Travis and I were talking about this. Um, there was a little bit of a chuckle, but it, you know, I, I am, I do mean it. And actually, the Reformed Forum guys they say a very, very similar thing too. Even though we uh, disagree on this question of impeccability, peccability, at some point we might have to just fall back on the incomprehensibility of God. There are mysteries here which we might not be able to resolve fully until the second coming or until Christ calls us home. We don't know fully, even as we are fully known yet. And yet we have God's word to say, this is true and this is true. How are they both true at the same time? It humbles us in a good way, in a way that is appropriate, that God wants for us to sometimes just say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how those things are true together at the same time. There's a tension there. So it can't be this and it can't be that. And maybe 
Sometimes you do a process of elimination. And also sometimes I have to admit, I could be wrong. I could be missing something. Or the people who disagree with me could be wrong. They could be missing something. What is not up for debate is whether, by the way, (laughs) whether Christ was fully God and fully man. I don't suppose that those who hold to impeccability are heretics, just to be very clear. But that is something that is a concern in my mind of how do you stop from sliding into what the church has regarded for 1500 years plus is a heresy regarding the person of Christ? How do you, how do you avoid that slide if the kind of argument being made regarding whether Christ could have sinned is a, as I see it, similar kind of argument about what would have been impossible for Christ given his divinity? Well, okay, what would have been impossible for Christ given his humanity? Let's also talk about that. (laughs) But again, what's not debated, what's not unclear is that Jesus Christ was and is fully God and fully man. Also, very importantly here, and and this is something I think the impeccability folks key in on, especially the Reformed Forum, Christ the Center podcast guys, we have in our day a difficulty that a lot of people feel with regards to the inerrancy of Scripture. And so then what happens if we say that Christ in his incarnation could have sinned, well, we're introducing the possibility that God could be wrong. He could make a mistake, which is to say, potentially, possibly, he still has the capacity to be wrong or to make a mistake. And then also, at the same time, there's an imperfection that maybe we have a hard time understanding as apart from, separate from, our humanity. Now, what is perfection, right? That also is an important question. Going back to the three young ladies on the street, what is a 10? (laughs) Now, it's not necessarily the same thing as being sinless or, you know, to to be fair to them, you know, the, the number of completion, the number of perfection, biblically, Uh, is typically seven, right? So completion is not necessarily the same thing as righteousness or sin. And yet these are related things. You know, one of the possible meanings of peace, for instance, in the Old Testament is restoration or to be made complete, to be made whole, wholeness. So You have a broken relationship, for instance. Something has been taken out of that relationship, removed from that relationship. To make peace with somebody is to put a thing that was taken out back in so that the relationship is restored, is whole again. Right? Something's missing. Well, okay. How does that relate to maturity? Uh, To Sinclair Ferguson's point, it says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and man or grew in favor with God. So we have this idea that you do not see the incarnate 
Christ, the incarnate Messiah, being born a fully formed man. Now, Adam, the first Adam, probably was. I don't think he was created out of the dust of the ground as a small child. This is also another reason why I do not like the argument that the earth and the universe must be very, very old because it looks very old. Well, yes, but do you think that Adam, if he was a literal man, if you hold to that, if you accept that, do you think that God made him out of the dust of the ground as an embryo and then he had to grow up from an embryo outside the womb? Do you think that God made Adam an infant? No, he made him a man. He made him fully mature with the appearance of what otherwise, when we're observing new people being born, takes time and maturity and aging over decades. And yet we don't have it left to the imagination. It's not ambiguous. It's not unclear. It's not left for us to debate how the incarnate Savior, how God the Son came into the world. We are not left debating whether he was an embryo or whether he was a fully formed man. We know from the nativity, it's explicitly stated he was born like we are, except to a virgin, supernaturally, as a sign and also as a way of getting around uh, the fact that, yes, you know, sorry, uh, men are held to a higher standard because we are the leaders, we are the heads, we are the representative samples the sinful nature comes down through the father's contribution. The sins of the fathers, you know, the, the phrase is not the sins of the mothers. The, the phrase is the sins of the fathers. Well, so also the way that Christ was sinless and did not have a sinful nature is that he was not Joseph's biological son. He was raised as Joseph's son per God, but he was supernaturally conceived of the Holy Spirit. And so then in Christ, we have this picture of a developing God with us who is not sinful for being, let's say, an infant who needs to nurse or have his diaper changed, or he needs to be, let's say, taught how to feed himself or get his chores done or speak or walk or what have you, not necessarily in that order. So we have this difficulty, I think, as human beings, never having known what it is to not have a sinful nature ourselves. Even those of us who have been raised on uh, pure, unadulterated, undiluted self-esteem, we don't know what it's like to be born without a sinful nature. But does that mean that Christ was incapable of being tempted even internally? Did he lack the potential even to sin? Well, again, going back to the references that are brought up, mentioned by gotquestions.org, what do we do with James 1.13? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Well, for one, the issue is not that we're being tempted by God or that Jesus was being tempted by God. Nope. Nope. That's easy. We can just take that piece out. But the latter part of this passage, 
is where we have to grapple. We have to recognize that we might not understand at first how these things can be true at the same time. God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil. What's James talking about? If the author of Hebrews says, our high priest, Jesus, was tempted in every respect as we are, there's a mystery to it. Now, the atheist would say, that mystery is proof that the Bible's not true. See, it contradicts itself. That's very hubristic. That's very arrogant. Why would we jump to the assumption that God's word must be what's lacking instead of our understanding? Our our understanding is what's lacking. We should start from the premise that God would know more than we do. And also that God, in wanting to transform us, is not going to just tell us things that we already know that are self-evident. Is that fair? Is that, is that, I think that needs to be said. I mean, where does the transformation happen? Where does our instruction happen? Where does our correction happen if God only ever tells us what we already know? It can't. You know, and so in, in some sense, the, the dividing line here, the test or the, the separation point as we come to these passages, it's not necessarily between those who are quite correct and have it all figured out and those many, many others who can be wrong in so many ways. I I think that's a mistake. I think that's a mistake actually that a lot of Reformed folk make, unfortunately, because they are so studious and they are so diligent and they do refer back a lot to tradition and such. But I mean, let's just be very clear I like that R.C. Sproul and Sinclair Ferguson agree with me, and they basically said the same thing that I said about this. But that doesn't necessarily mean I'm right. <laughs> we, we could all be wrong together. <laughs> but no, I, you know, I, I, don't think, I don't think that the dividing line here is just who all has it figured out, and then everyone else represents the many, many ways you could be wrong, the many wrong answers we could give for how these things go together. I actually think a better division, a better categorization would be on the one hand, you have those who desperately want to know God because God has reached out to them and touched them and called them to himself and will, in his own good time, make himself known to them for his glory, for their benefit, on the one hand. And on the other hand, those who don't really actually want to know. I think that's the better dividing line. And sometimes the folks who don't really want to know come in the form of those who say, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> and they're just honest. They, they just say it flat out. They're very, and, and that's not great. Right, That's a very, very small silver lining, very slim. If all you can be complimented for is how honestly dismissive you were. But on the other hand, what I think is actually worse, I think it's a compound error, a compound fracture of good character, is those who say, I do know, even when they don't, and they don't care that they don't actually know, so long as they can pull off a convincing bluff. 
And again, what I'm not saying is those who disagree with me on this question belong in that latter category. I'm not saying that. Actually, I think they have some very compelling reasons from what I've heard to hold to the impeccability of Christ. I just, I think they're mistaken. I think they're mistaken. I I can be gracious to those I disagree with here. I might actually be a little bit more gracious than Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul were being, dare I say it. But I would say something close to what they said. I would say, I personally can't hold to that view because I don't know how I would stop myself from sliding into docetism. And and maybe one can very easily. And I'm just being dense. That, that's... <laughs> That, that, before I heard Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul communicating the exact same view, that's what I, kind of where I was coming down on it was, well, okay, maybe I just – maybe I'm just not seeing it. But this seems like a difficulty that needs to be resolved. You know, the the classical heresy of denying Christ's humanity. I mean, that seems like that's a, a thing to grapple with. But JP, he, he brought up a great point, right? And and we do disagree on this, and that's that's fine. God love JP. I certainly do. JP brought up a, a great point, and that is, in our day, it's so much more common to try and humanize Christ to make him more relatable to us. And so we don't want to do that. And maybe folks like me, maybe even folks like Sinclair Ferguson and R.C. Sproul grapple with that a little bit without knowing that we're grappling with it. It's an interesting thing to ponder. Maybe we've been pulled in by this drive to make Christ too relatable. But then, again, on our side of the equation, just like on the impeccability side, it's not that we have nothing to go on. Hebrews is a huge comfort for those of us who want to not be tempted and are grieved that we're tempted. And I think on some level— at least, at a minimum, on some level, the author of Hebrews is wanting to relieve us of some unnecessary guilt with regards to temptation. We have to at least say that much. Don't be discouraged because you're tempted. Christ was tempted and yet without sin. Yet without sin. It's critically important. He was not sinful. If he had been sinful, if he had sinned, whether he had the ability or not, whether we can know, whether we need to know— If he had sinned, he could not have been the atoning sacrifice. His sufficiency as our atoning sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins, dying the death in our place to make us right with the Father, only works. It only actually atones for our sins if he is the sinless Lamb of God, yet without sin. The really remarkable thing I think regardless, however it happened, (laughs) I trust the really important thing is that it happened, that he is our sufficient atoning sacrifice, that he is sinless. I'm content, for instance, if he was incapable of sinning, so long as I still (laughs) am benefiting from this unmerited favor, this grace of God, right? But nevertheless, we might find ourselves, if we are not careful, internalizing an avenue of attack that the enemy of our souls 
wants to keep open, to make us unproductive, to discourage us, to get us to grow weary in doing what is good, so long as he can keep tempting us, if he can be the accuser of the brethren based on nothing more than just tempting us, and then saying, ah, see, you must not be in Christ because you're tempted. Well, then he will. And we know his game. It is that. Just like his game might be to try and lure us into the error that God is tempted by evil or that God is tempting us to impugn God's character or to accuse God, to find fault with God. If that won't work because, well, no, I've got James down. James says God is not tempted by evil, nor does he tempt any man. Another option that Satan might try is to say, we are tempted and therefore we must not know God. We must not be in Christ. I'll tell you, part of where this comes out and finds expression, which I've given a fair amount of thought to over the years, recent years, is particularly since high school on the question of so-called gay Christians. Now, why do they call themselves that? Why do they tell us we can call them that? Ask us to call them that? In most of my own personal experiences, it's because they themselves have been tempted with homosexuality. Whether they give in to that temptation, they say, no, I don't. So I take them at their word that they don't give in to it. And yet they identify themselves with the temptation. So then my question is whether the really important thing is that they gave in to the temptation or that they had the temptation. In other words, is your identity established based on you having been tempted with homosexuality or is it based on whether you are embracing that lifestyle? I think that it's the latter and I think it's also very dangerous and very unwise, very damaging to say that your identity now is what you're tempted with. Why are you doing that? I don't think you should be doing that. Now, if somebody wants to say, you know, I've been really, really tempted in this regard, and here are the reasons why, and pray for me because I am standing my ground, and that's not the way I want to live. And I know that that's not what God has for me, but pray for me because I am tempted in that regard. I think that's a separate thing. I think it's even a separate thing to say, I have been in a previous life tempted with this, and such were some of you, such was I. I gave into this, and that's who I was, but no more. Christ has given me a new life in him. I think that is a far more biblical and far more wise and profitable conclusion. But in that case... Our identity is found in Christ. Our identity is found in God's righteousness, God's unmerited favor, and we are not using that grace as a cover-up for continuing to live in a sinful, wicked way, unrepentantly. If you've really repented from these things, well, then that's not who you are anymore. Such were some of you, not such are some of you, even if you stopped but I don't see 
I don't see the necessity of taking James 1.13 to mean that every time someone feels drawn to sin, it is always, only, ever because of their sinful nature. So, for instance, let's, let's talk about Jesus. He goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights after being baptized by John. Without food, without water, it's a supernatural thing that he's able to stay alive without food or water in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. One of the things that Satan tempts him with is food. Now, eating food is not a sin. In fact, one of the accusations against Jesus is that he's a glutton and a drunkard. That's what the religious enemies say of him. But he's not a glutton and he's not a drunkard. He enjoys having a good meal and he enjoys having wine and he enjoys sitting down for a fine meal with tax collectors and prostitutes who need a physician. And yet it's not sin if he sits down with a tax collector and a prostitute because he's the physician of their souls. That's not the temptation. The temptation is when Satan is the one trying to get him to command these stones to turn into bread because Satan said so. So if you're Jesus, fully man in that moment when Satan says, command these stones and they'll become bread. Have you sinned if you suddenly remember that you are actually hungry? Have you sinned? It says he was hungry. <laughs> Verse 1, Matthew 4, 1. This is right before the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and all that. It says he was hungry. And that's when the tempter comes and says, if you're the son of God. See, the problem is not that he's hungry. The problem, the sin is not being hungry. And I think that that is part of the dividing line here where myself, R.C. Sproul, Sinclair Ferguson would say, whoa, 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 whoa. He is still fully God and fully man when he's hungry. We don't need to deny that he's hungry here. If he is all of a sudden reminded of his hungriness, that is not the same thing as being tempted by your sinful nature on the inside that you have from the first man, Adam, through your father. Yeah, just so. The next temptation, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. See, he's even, Satan, using scripture. He's misusing, he's twisting it, he's perverting it. The crux of the matter, no pun intended, is it's the devil, it's Satan, wanting Jesus to do these things because Jesus then will be submitting to the devil. That's the issue here. It's not, first and foremost, that these verses are true or are not true because now it's Satan who's quoting them, obviously, obviously. Again, it is written, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. See, that's really what it, that's really what it was all about. And yet I think we have to be very careful that we don't 
embrace a mind-body dualism that says we need to repent if we're hungry, fill in the blank with regards to whatever. You know, this is another thing. This is a thing that uh, Travis Polk pointed out yesterday. He was talking about how Augustine would say, or C.S. Lewis would say, I think he got it from C.S. Lewis, but I think C.S. Lewis got it from Augustine. Evil is just a perversion of the good or a diminution of the good. Evil is not a self-existent thing that Satan created and God made all the good things and Satan made all the evil things. No, all Satan has to work with are the good things that God made, but he twists them and he uses them to his purpose. And we have to be, we have to be asking, what was the good purpose that God had for these things? And are we using them according to God's good purpose? And are these things whole or are they broken sometimes when we come across them? And who broke them and what broke them? Sin broke them. Satan broke them. We broke them. But God can make them whole. But for a thing to be tempting, it has to still have quite a lot of good in it. And yet there's a twist. There's always a twist, whether in the thing itself or in the application of the thing or the enjoyment of the thing or the presentation of the thing or the context in which it's being presented to us. In this case, in the temptation of Christ, it's the context and it's who is trying to present these things that otherwise can be totally legitimate, but not when the conditions, the terms of service agreement is for me to listen to you right now would be for me to be worshiping you. For me to listen to you right now would be to make you my master, and that can't be. You know, so I, I think part of what's <laughs> I think part of what's on the line here, and it doesn't mean that I, I know that I'm right, but it, it is to say it's part of the reason why I'm maintaining my position. I think part of what's on the line here is the question of did he really? And and this comes back again and again on questions of biblical interpretation when we're in the first chapters of Genesis, and it says, God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh he rested. The question is, but did he really? When people start to present day-age or gap theory or theistic evolution or purely allegorical readings of Genesis 1 through 3, when we come to giants like Goliath, and such and such a number of cubits is mentioned. And then you have modern scholars saying, well, actually, really, Goliath was probably only like six foot six. Again, I perceive the real question to be, but did he really? But was it really? But is it really true? God's word? Noah's flood. Was it global or was it localized? And then it just got blown up, made hyperbolic. Half God said, that was the original point of attack, line of attack, angle of attack that Satan used with regards to Eve. Half God said, did he really say? Is it really the case that on the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die? No, 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 no. And I think, you know, hey, I, honestly... I could be presented with the exact same question 
that I have for the impeccability crowd. You know, my question centers more on the Hebrews passages, but the impeccability crowd, they're saying, what about James, right? So again, we fall back to something. It is, it's not a minor point. It's not a bug. It's a feature of Christian theology. And this is, I think, to help us to be humble because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. God's incomprehensibility. So at some point we just say, I don't know. Now, we don't have to say that at the very start. We shouldn't. We should grapple with it. We should study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. But it is okay at a certain point to say, I don't know. I'm not sure. On the one hand, this, and on the other hand, that. And God knows, and I'm content with that. And I know this must be true, and I know this must be true. And how they're both true together, there's a tension in my mind, which God will more fully resolve in his good timing, and I'm content with that. That's where I come down on it, personally. Again, please hear what I am saying. What's not up for debate is that Christ was sinless. Also, what is not up for debate is that we need Christ. We need this Savior. We go to him. He will show us the love of God. He will teach us how to love God. He will teach us how to love one another. And I think, too, as we follow after him, we will find we ourselves will get love from one another as well in a way that is a testimony to the world that does not know God. And that's God's good pleasure. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. If you've got some thoughts on this question, something I haven't considered, an argument that would help uh, expand my understanding, improve my understanding, please, by all means, reach out. Let me know what it is. Apologies to anyone who thought it was sacrilegious for me to pair these things together the way that I did. But we can talk about that, too, because I'm here at Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. <laughs> so... As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.